this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Before we begin today, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you who supported me on my Strictly journey. I had such a laugh and I, I just felt so lucky to be in till week four. So for all of you that picked up the phone and voted and kept me in, thank you so much. And I'm so glad here we are again together on Casey Piper's Extraordinary People. Hello, I'm Katie Piper and welcome to my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. Each episode, I'll meet an amazing person with an incredible story who faced adversity and came through the other side to inspire others. Today, I'm talking to Tulsi Vagiani, an incredible woman. As a child, she was involved in a plane crash in which she lost her parents and her brother. The crash left her with severe and life-changing burns. We talk about how the crash changed her life, as well as how she battled depression and kidney failure in adulthood, to then become a Pilates instructor and a motivational speaker with a sunny and positive outlook on life. Hello, Tulsi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you uh, for coming on my podcast today. Thank you for inviting me, Katie. <laughs> so it's not the first time we've met. No. Um, we e-met over email initially. Yes. Um, in 2012. So we should we should start. We, I mean, obviously, I know a lot about you, but for the people that don't, let let's start from the beginning. So your childhood. Um, my childhood, yeah, I've I've had a great childhood, really happy. Um, if I look back on it, I can just describe it with sunshine. Literally, that's how it feels. Um, I was very spoiled um, by my dad, particularly. Were you an only child? No, I had a younger brother. Okay. Um, so he was quite sport in a different way. He was very academic and I was very mischievous. Yeah. Do you, looking back on your childhood n now in hindsight, can you see any moments where you recognised you had a good resilience and you, and you recognised that you had those coping skills or do you think actually you developed them later in life? I think I've always had them because every time I sort of fell, I just got up, whether it was loads of cuts and bruises. I was always in and out of hospital for mm -hmm. something or another. I probably was quite scatty and, you know, yeah. clumsy. Um, but no, I just got up and I never sort of cried about it. And it's funny talking about your childhood and asking you what you were like, because actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but in a way your childhood was cut very short. Yes, it was cut short, yeah. At what age did things dramatically change? At the age of 10. Mm -hmm. um, just on a holiday, me and my family went to India. Right. Because we went to visit my um, great-granddad. So my 
dad hadn't seen his grandfather in 23 years. So both of your parents are originally from India, is that right? Yeah. So was this your first time going to India? Yeah, it was my yeah. first holiday, in fact. So it's quite a big thing, isn't it? Going going back to the, the homeland where you've got family. You know, it's not just like going on a holiday to Spain. This is quite a big... Yeah, and I think I never really realised like how big it was until I got on the plane. And I think, oh, wow... Because up until that point, I've always waved someone goodbye on a plane. You know, so you've never flown. And I've never flown, so it was my first time. And do you remember your feelings about flying? What? Um, I think it was just excitement of yeah. what's to be expected when I get to India. I just wanted to get there and see this man who is my great granddad. So excitement about the unknown, an innocence of a child. Yeah. Because a child doesn't really foresee anything other than this is a new experience. How exciting! I think they just live in the moment, don't they? Mm-hmm. And and the trip, how did the trip go? Yeah, it was really good initially. Um, we lost our luggage, so we just had one suitcase between the four of us. Unless you wore the same thing for the whole day, <laughs> yeah. trip. Yeah, so we yeah. got to our village, saw my great-granddad, and we were there for about a week. Mm-hmm. And then we got a phone call to say that your luggage has now arrived. Right. And back then, they didn't used to deliver back to where you live, okay. so you had to pick it up from Mumbai. Right. So due to the luggage, we thought, we'll pick it up, rather than going back and forth... We'll pick it up. We'd travel where we needed to travel because we were going to travel to around India initially. Mm. So you get to Mumbai Airport and you're boarding a flight to go to... Bangalore. Bangalore. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, we, you know, get on the flight again. So this is now the third or fourth time we're now flying. Mm-hmm. So it's a domestic flight. But all I really remember of that time is fighting with my brother as right. per usual okay. yeah. <laughs> and you know the youngest they always get away with so much more than the oldest yeah. right and so I wanted to sit by the window but he got there and I think what I remember is the blue skies and the green fields okay. and it's the first time I've kind of seen something like that right because you've been a child growing up in London that's where you grew up right? yes it's yeah. all city city and... yeah yeah and so I remember fighting with him and then that's pretty much all I do remember so this plane that your family were on, it crashed. It crashed, so... And you don't remember the process of, was there an announcement or was there a sudden drop? It just... So, no, I don't remember any other voices other than just that moment of me and my brother fighting. I don't know if I just had the mechanism to just shut down. I'm not sure. So what would be your first memory after it crashing? Did so you... After the crash, my first memory then is hearing my grandmother's voice. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why is she close to me? Mm-hmm. So now in my head, I'm thinking she's here to surprise us because I last left her in the UK. Mm-hmm. She has told me what's happened. I am in and out of sedation because I don't remember any kind of pain or anything. Mm-hmm. I remember sort of hospital sounds, yeah, but nothing major. But she's saying, you know, you've been involved in an accident, your parents have passed away and you look different. That's a lot of information to take on at once. Isn't yeah. It? And I don't think I did process that. I just recall that memory. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I was just really buzzed out with the fact that why is she here to surprise us? Because mm-hmm. you're so young, you're 10 years old. And I suppose up until that point in your life, you've never really experienced any real pain or trauma. No, I've had a great childhood. So I don't remember any kind of loss in mm-hmm. any kind of way, you know, not even a pet or, you know, nothing of that nature. And here you are experiencing a major plane crash. Yeah. A bereavement of both of your parents and your brother. And my brother, yes. And your brother. And the fact that your injuries are are life-changing. Yeah, it was a very life-changing moment, but Mm -hmm. I think I didn't realise the severity of it until I came back to the UK. So I was flown back to the UK. How long did you stay in the hospital in India then? 
the accident happened on 14th of February. Mm. Um, I believe I was back in the UK on the 17th or 18th of February, so a good few days. And did you speak the local language? No. I think the only person other than my grandmother's voice I heard was a young medic who just said, I'm going to be looking after you. And I'm like, who is he? Mm -hmm. Like, I don't even know this voice. Were you the only survivor of that plane crash? No, there was quite a few survivors. Um, I was involved with another family, you know, in the accident, who I didn't even know at the time, mm. but they're from London as well. They helped me come back to the UK. Right. They went off to Mount Vernon Hospital and I went to um, St Andrews in Billericay at the time. Right. And then I hear my extended family, so, well, my aunties and uncles and cousins. Yeah. And they're all talking to me and crying. I'm like, now why are they here to surprise me? Yeah. Like, what's going on? Is this some big birthday that I don't know about? And it's again, just that innocence of a child. You wouldn't understand to yeah. be able to get your head around the severity. I and mean, it's quite surreal almost. It is surreal because I think, like, they're trying to tell me what's happened. It was so huge and I was in and out of sedation and, mm-hmm. you know, obviously then in, in and out of theatre to stop infections and skin grafts. And I know you wouldn't have been aware of this at the time, but going on with the family, was the message from the consultant, she might not survive? Yes, that was... Um, apparently on a few occasions in India mm-hmm. as well as the UK. Mm. What? Sorry, what were your injuries medically? How, you were left with severe burns? Yes, yeah, so the severe burns, 45% burns to my face and body. Mm-hmm. So they are very, very serious injuries serious that people, injuries. people do die from. Yeah, and That's... smoke inhalation, mm-hmm. a few fractures as well. Yeah, and, you know, for anybody, losing their family is un- unthinkable pain. When did you even begin to grieve? Because, I mean, in hospital, you were fighting for your life. Yeah, in hospital, I was fighting for my life. I was taken care of, you know, from all my needs. Mm. Um, Not having a moment to really grieve. Mm -hmm. It's sort of six weeks post-accident when they removed the bandages from my eyes and, you know, I requested to look at myself in the mirror. Mm -hmm. What is this thing when everyone says you look different, burns? Mm -hmm. At the age of 10, I didn't even know what an iron burn was, let alone anything else. Yeah. And then... To see myself was quite surreal. Mm-hmm. They all prepared me, you know, nurses and doctors. And I thought it was a joke at first when I saw myself in the mirror because I thought somebody drew that face on. Because mm-hmm. that didn't even look like a real face. Yeah, I mean, to look in the mirror and not see what you see every day. But I felt myself inside still, you know. I still was just me mm-hmm. because I had nothing else to compare, you know. And then as I blinked and as my mouth moved, so did the person in the mirror. Mm-hmm. I did realise something has happened. But I still believed that my parents will come back. I just thought they've lost their passport. It wasn't sinking in. And I think for me, it was probably on the 20th anniversary of the accident. That's almost 20 years on that I finally accepted that they're not coming back. And I'm not I'm okay with it. How old were you then? I probably would have been about 29, 30. Right. So this is when you you gained the acceptance of the bereavement of the loss and and was it hard? I mean, your family around you, so grateful you survived. Were there moments where you wished you hadn't, or why did I and why didn't they? Yeah, I think a few times. So like people who around me, like in this local supermarket, for example, knew what happened, mm-hmm. and they'd always say, "Wow, you're so lucky you survived," and I was like, "How?" can I be lucky like to survive I didn't understand that Mm -hmm. but like now in hindsight I do feel really blessed because there's a reason 
you know, why I had survived and why I'm here today. Mm-hmm. It's not just in vain that it happened. You know, there's many reasons. and But I had to change that around, right? Mm-hmm. Did you have a psychologist that supported you? No. No. So this is all kind of worked out yourself? Myself, yeah. yeah trial and error in my own head. And... Do you know, the, the? I mean, I was going to say funny, but obviously this is a serious conversation we're having. But one of the things that does make me laugh about you is of everyone I know, you travel the most. <laughs> you're constantly on a plane and you're constantly flying. Yeah. You obviously don't hesitate to get back on a plane. No, because if I want to experience the world, it's going to take longer sailing, right? (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah, I'm not up for cruising either myself. Yeah, no. Yeah. So when I first got back on was three years after the accident. We went back to India. 13. 13. We went back to the same place. Oh, yeah, went back to India. Again, going to visit my great-granddad. So was there an aunt or an uncle saying, you've got to get on this plane? No, so I went with my grandparents, who I went on to live with after the accident. We just was going on a trip. Um, It was planned for us to go to Bangalore as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Were you anxious? Were you scared? I think a little bit of it was. I think it's just that takeoff mm-hmm. and that landing feeling. What were your coping mechanisms? Um, I think I was just absorbed by the TV programme because it's the first time I'm kind of realising there's a big screen and there's something yeah. different. <laughs> so you zoned out with telly. Yeah. So we got a chance to visit the um, air site. Mm-hmm. So what they did at the airport, because they kind of all knew me, because especially with my name, it's a really famous name in right. India and it means a holy plant. And so... There was like a big hoo-ha at the airport. You know, they all just wanted to take care of me. Wow, that's interesting. It was cool. And then they shut down the um, sort of air uh, runway and stuff so that I could visit that site. Mm -hmm. Now, to anyone else, it's a concrete slab. Mm -hmm. But I felt something had happened there. And I don't know why, but I just broke down there. As if I've been here before, but I don't know when. What a strange feeling. Because, again, I was from the moment the plane crashed... To me, going into hospital, I've not seen anything. It's a blackout. Yeah, so yeah. It, like I said, it just looks like a concrete slab. So you experienced a physical feeling in the stomach? Yeah. Like, and it made you cry? Yeah, it was quite crippling. Like I felt something has happened here. I don't know what. So there wasn't any kind of visible thing that this is, you know, 14th of February 1990, X, Y and Z happened here. It wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. But I felt something. But when I laid a, a wreath there, I felt like it was a little bit of a closure of something. I mean, I just cried for the first time. I think that was the first time I think anyone has really seen me cry. So you let go? I let go. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. I had an experience once with somebody who wanted to, um, like, role-play, uh-huh. like, um, like with relative stuff. No. Yes. No. That's a and hard I couldn't, pass. And I said, I said, um, they no. wanted, they first said, da- like, dad, daddy, oh, and, and, and I said, um... Well, that's not so bad. But, um... So I suggested maybe like, I said, maybe the most I could do is uncle. (laughs) Okay, so that was just a snippet of an episode with actor and podcaster Justin Long. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and I'm telling you, you need to listen to the full episode on my podcast, Dinner's on Me. Over a meal at Pine and Crane in downtown LA, we get into his love story with Kate Bosworth, his career, and so much more. To listen, just search Dinner's on Me wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Now, um, earlier in the podcast, we have been talking about your life and you've been through um, an incredibly difficult time where many would give up and you haven't. What is remarkable about you is you went through school, the education system, living your, your life um, and making the best of your life um, and you ended up going to university. Yeah, I went to university um, to study complementary therapy at the time because I was specialising in um, therapeutic massage and Pilates. Okay. So whereas Pilates was in my life um, before university because that helped me change my body shape because I'd put on so much weight. Because you've been in a hospital, in a hospital, yeah. and sort of suffered depression as well. Uh-huh. So what age do you think you developed depression? I was around twenty. Right, so it's a difficult time in any woman's life. Yeah, I just was really, I just felt worthless and useless. And did you recognise it was depression, or did you not realise? No, it's I think often with these things you don't realise until you're sort of out of it somehow mm. that you were in it. Mm-hmm. because you think, what's wrong with me? On a day-to-day basis, how did your depression at this stage in your life affect you? Um, so it's affected me. I mean, I used to still go out because I thought I had to. So you could get out of bed? I could get out of right. bed. Um, but it would still take me ages. Um, but I think around me, everyone sort of thought maybe it's to do with my burns, for example. You right. know? Um, and I kind of used that. I never did speak to anyone about it. And ne- all these things that um, I talk about now openly... Mm-hmm. It's shocking to people around me because they're like, wow, you went through that. They didn't know you were suffering internally. No, because I just couldn't. Because depression is quite isolating and actually so concerns me. So here you are, a young woman in the world, feeling like the only woman in the world. Definitely. But yeah, so I mean, I used food as my way of dealing with things. It was my comfort. So that was the way to suppress the emotions and, and zone out. Yeah, I mean, I was I used to drink, but that was the age, and you know, I going out with friends, for example. Yeah, life and soul of the party. Yeah, and that's when the confidence come out. So I know I was drinking more for that. And being life and soul, do you think it was an act? Definitely. Yeah, because it, again, it's about the acceptance. Look at me, mm-hmm. um, approval, all of these kind of words, you know, which we're all looking for on a day to day basis. So it's, it's an ironic scenario of, I suppose, the group knowing you as she's so much fun, she's loud, she's the first one up, mm-hmm. you know. But really behind that facade, so much pain. There is, and a lot of comparison. So if I'd gone to a bar, see someone really beautiful, mm-hmm. a woman, why can't I look like that? Mm-hmm. Um, well, okay, if I can't be five foot ten, for example, you know. Yeah. But why can't I look like that? Why can't I look beautiful or... Mm-hmm. Or have men stare at me that way? So this twen- the 20s, this was a hard time. You know, despite having had the problems you'd had for all this time, this was when it started to be a struggle. Yeah, the 20s was yeah. really significant. And with the eating, would you eat alone? Would friends see it? Did people know it was going on? Or was it very much behind closed doors? Behind closed doors, very much. Um, getting those multi-pack crisps, for example. That was my mm-hmm. thing, crisp was... And I know that for me, crisp was my association with my mum because at young age I used to fight with her to have it for breakfast and she'd say no. Yeah. Um, chocolate, whatever, it, whatever. It, yeah. You know, there was no sort of this is it. And it was all the time. And the weight was piling on, but it was in the pinnacle when I was size 24. Right. I'd got to that size. And then I realised that this is not me. What you're describing is an eating disorder. Yeah. And if it had been the other way, people would have said, what's going on here? Yeah. No one recognised I had an eating disorder, mm-hmm. and I didn't know until after. No, I don't think you would know because you're doing your best to cope with life and you're you're muddling through and you're trying to survive yeah. every day. Yeah, and then that's when I joined a gym and I found my Pilates instructor. Mm-hmm. 
she gave me confidence back, especially with exercises around the knee area that was difficult. Suddenly I could do something and I felt a little bit worthy. That's quite empowering then, that moment. Yeah, because she mm. gave me that empowerment back that mm. you can do it. Mm -hmm. It was really good. And then this degree came up. So was uni a positive place? It was great. Right. I was at that stage where I was ready to study as well um, because I want this. Not because of the career, mm -hmm. but it's something I can prove to myself that I can do it. Personal challenge. Yeah. yeah. So at what point did things change at uni? So again, things changed. Uh, I think it was in the second year of university. So first year under your belt. Yep. Successful. Uh, loved it. Then the second year, all going well. I started to feel really ill. What do you mean in your in your head, in your stomach? No, it's a physical. Like I started to feel really nauseous, but I went to get myself checked out at the GP. Well, that's good because most people wouldn't, would they? Well, they I tried ignore. to ignore it, but I just couldn't even sit in a lecture theatre, and that's not like me because I was really excited to be there. So this had become quite overwhelming. It was then. really overwhelming. Within the four days, now you know, with blood tests in general, GP it takes about two weeks for your results to yeah. come back in general. Mine came back within four days. Okay. So there's a week so in between. So alarm bells are ringing. Yeah, there's a weekend in between A&E. I went to A&E. They couldn't do anything. Well, I got in to my GP uh, Monday morning, and as I arrived, my blood results had arrived too. Right. He had a panic in his voice, but I was more like, I just need to get to um, lectures. So you were sort of, you weren't really thinking beyond what was no. happening at that time. No, I right. just, and I guess with me, I've never thought things really serious. Right. In general, I'm just like... And also, because of what you've been through, I think you always measure it like, well, it can never be worse than what's already happened. Yeah, I guess, yeah. You know, you've got, you've coped with that, so you'll yeah, cope with this. Yeah, what is this, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, then he said, okay, look, we need to do a biopsy of your kidneys. Results came back. And said, so, look, I'm afraid um, you've got end-stage renal failure. What does that mean? So that's the last stage in which your actual kidneys are functioning now. We don't know how long you got on them. Wow. I'm just lucky. That how, I went, how old are you? 26. 26 at this point. So I was lucky that I went at the time I went and I got the ball rolling because it's actually a silent disease. So you could have actually just dropped dead. Yeah, because that's all I heard. Yeah. But when I heard end-stage renal failure, I my auntie was there with me. I just heard, I'm dying. That's all mm. I heard. He didn't even say that, but that's how I read it. And how did you feel? Because, I mean, I've had, um, since my initial injury, I then years later got really ill with a um, condition in my throat. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I've been through all these skin grafts, all this surgery, survived this burn injury, and now to die five years later. I was pretty angry and shocked. And for me, it was like a film flashing through. And yeah. What was it like? I think for me, well, I was just annoyed that I can't finish my degree because finally, after so many years of doing so many different courses and that, it's finally something I'm enjoying. And all you'd worked for. All I've worked for. I feel worthy enough to do it. I feel confident that I can do it. Enjoyed the journey. And here I am, going to die. Like, mm. really. I mean, that really is when you can feel like it's so unfair. Yeah, I mean, if I'm going to go, I'd rather go quite dramatically rather than in a... <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Let me fall off a cliff yeah, and have, exactly. like, a really fancy funeral. Yeah. 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 But uh, not because of this, yeah. like, surely. But all I remember was ringing my uni friend going, please do not forget to get the lecture notes. God, that's so interesting. I thought you were going to say, please, can I have your kidney? <laughs> <laughs> kidney and cool. the notes. Can you yeah, imagine that? Either or, yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting then. So that signifies you didn't give up on life because you were still focusing. You still saw a future. If you wanted those notes for that lecture, you still saw a future and you still saw a way forward. You know, you were like, oh, no, I've got a course to complete. Yeah, I just, that was all it was, you know. Not again, not about a career or anything. I just got to finish this degree 
for myself. Mm. And I just thought, all right, okay, if I'm going to be on dialysis, just get it over and done with. So that's what you ended up doing, going on dialysis. Yeah, right? and um, but they couldn't be sure of how long I had, because I had 15%, 15% function at that time mm-hmm. on my kidneys. They go, we don't know, because some people can survive two years, 10 years, 15 even their whole life. So much uncertainty. So mine lasted four months. So I was just about to go on holiday. Right. Thought, get one holiday in before I do start dialysis. Yeah. I just couldn't. They go, you you have a choice of either dying on the plane or us trying to do something now. I'm like, oh, God. What kind of choice is that? Yeah, what is that? Yeah. that how is that even a choice? I guess, well, obviously I'll come into hospital. Why, uh, why didn't you give up? I don't know. I think, I guess, I don't know. I've never seen that as a choice. So that wasn't even an option? No, I've never... So, so do, do you even recognise that you carried on despite, or do you just think you just did the norm? I think I was just autopilot from what I can remember. Mm. I guess I know there must have been a reason, like, why all this has been happening, mm. and it's not just so that you can just die. Like, surely, you know, that's not an option for me. That can't be the end of your story. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, for me, I was so lucky because I got to be on dialysis, um, so dialyze at home mm-hmm. so rather than going into hospital three times a week which again would be really disruptive. disrupting yeah so every night life, i'd be on yeah. the machine for eight hours so i'd plug myself in but because obviously i was at university yeah so i'd have all my textbooks and laptop and all that on the bed connect myself to the machine and, do and then thing. do my thing yeah disconnect in the morning go to lectures as per usual wow see i was going to make a joke about oh what would have been a lot of box sets but i'm like no you didn't sit there watching telly on your laptop you actually sat there doing a degree (laughs) so there's a difference between me and you i would have been up to season eight and desperate housewives and you're like no girlfriend i'm getting a qualification yeah (laughs) this is not gonna stop me no gosh can you imagine (laughs) that's crazy yeah so yeah i did that and um it worked and then i deferred yeah so rather than finishing three years i finished on the fourth year Wow, I want to hug you. Like, that's amazing. That (laughs) that is incredible. And then after dialysis, you know, I mean, I got my degree. Mm -hmm. I got a 2 1. I was a percent short of a fast. Wow. So I was like, that's brilliant. That's for considering the hard part of it was from the second year onwards. But literally finished my degree in the middle of decorating my house. Mm. I got a phone call two months after January 2009. Mm -hmm. We have a kidney for you. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. Ridiculous clock in the morning. I'm like, who yeah. rings at that time, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. He goes, oh, it's Dr. Blah, 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 from Royal London. We've got a kidney. I was like, uh, right, okay, how long do I get to tell you? Because I'm in the middle of decorating my house. I've got a meeting with architects tomorrow and the yeah. builder. Yeah. Can I not wait? And he's like, <laughs> uh, this is your life. Yeah. You have five minutes. I'm like, well, in that case, like, i Do you know how in. busy builders are? Do you know? I'll never get a rebooking. So I said, right, I'll come in for surgery. I think on I'll schedule it for Friday yeah. that they can come in. And he's like... No, you're going to be here for quite a while. So put this into perspective, organ transplant is huge Well, it's massive. It's a life-changing. Yeah, Yeah, but I just never saw how severe it was. Yeah, Because I kind of envisaged my life on dialysis because it was going well. Yeah. I managed it. I had a good routine. Yeah. Um, Have my transplant. Was fine. Everything went well. And then I got really ill. So pretty much all of 2009, I've lived in Royal London. This is post the transplant. Post transplant. Did you take the... Because you know I had the transplant in my eye. Do you That's remember right. I told yeah. you? Did you take the same rejection drugs as me? The um, 
what were they called? Were you in cyclosporin? That's it, cyclosporin. Yeah, oh God, yeah, I was oh, on them initially, the awful horse pills. Yeah, how long did you take cyclosporin? Uh, a few months, and then I changed over to another one. Oh, my God. It's hideous. Hideous. Excessive hair growth, mm-hmm. constantly nausea, Oh yeah. a dizzy, shaking, and sorry to be graphic, this thing, chronic diarrhea and vomiting. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole package, but where I was so ill, and there's times it was, I mean, it was really cold that winter, I stood I sort of in the middle of the night, you know, you're in sort of pain. And I just thought, what is going on here? Yeah. I'm doing everything right, pretty much by the textbook. Uh-huh. What is going on? So you're the perfect patient, you're complying to all the advice and you still feel What's dreadful. going on? Why am right. I here? And in that moment, it came to me that whatever I can't control, I need to let go. And for you, that's a lot. Yeah, because at that moment it all kind of came to me that because I was talking to my consultant it was really cool and I said look talk to me in a medical term I don't want to just sort of layman term of this I want the nitty-gritty of it and we talked on cellular level and all of that and I said in that moment I can't control on a cellular level what my body's going to do so I need to let that go Mm -hmm. but what I can control what I can put in my mouth or not how I deal with things I will control that Mm -hmm it's then things start to shift a bit. Because right. there was a point I did want to give up at that moment. Look, no one's going to blame you, seriously. But that was I at mean, that point. It sounds really weird. Like, after everything, it was at that point. But it's that question of how much can one human endure? That's you know? it. I think that's what it was. How much am I going to endure now? Mm. And I did want to give up. But you didn't. But I didn't. Um, and then that's what's got me through. And that's sort of, I guess... Because lots of strong, inspirational survivors have wanted to give up hundreds of times. And yeah. that's not a failure. No, that's, that's not. Because that's just a wake-up, you know. Yeah. It's just a wake-up of there's something bigger and better out there. Yeah, and if we don't get to the give-up point, well, then we haven't got to rock bottom. No. So then we can't reach our peak anyway. No, because you don't know what you're living up no, to, No, there's right? no comparison. No comparison, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and then um, that, as soon as I made that decision, then things have got better and... Sure enough, I had like infections for five years, which mm-hmm. physically weakened my body. Mm. Um, so now I'm rebuilding my life again. So I've gone back to doing Pilates. You're like uh, the bionic woman. <laughs> I wish. You're like, you can't kill me. You can't oh, end me. Can you you can't, it's just like you're never going, I'm going anywhere. Like I said, I better go on a high, not in a hospital bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no. So yeah, and that's what's got me. But I think that's another th- really important note is. What you can't control, you just need to let go. And this is a message now you're quite passionate about. I mean, that's one of your your jobs now. You travel the world as a motivational speaker. And you talk, do you talk about what we talked about today? Do you talk about your journey? Yeah, we talk about, you know, um, positive mental attitude. How do you turn a negative situation, what, what we deem to be negative, into a positive? Mm-hmm. So how do you stop the regular person annoying you? How do you stop people that go to you? Oh, I know exactly how you feel um, because I've had a, I've got a really bad sickness bug. You know that. I entertain them. Right. I, ent- I give them full ownership back. Mm-hmm. Half of them don't even know my life story. They yeah. just presume what they see on the outside. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Like we, you know, we talk about how big is something, right? Like my scars are on my face and my body. Mm. Somebody might have a scar on their chest, which they can cover up. Mm-hmm. How can we take away like how big it is for them? Mm-hmm. It's all relative. It's, it's really all relative, relative yeah. right? It's what's going on individually for that person. Mm. But I think I've always carried compassion in my heart. Yeah, always. You've never become bitter or no. angry, and that's I mean that's obvious. Me on meeting you, you've got the aura, you've got the glow. Yeah, you know. And I think my buzz now in life is always to better myself. Mm-hmm. So even whilst meeting you, and also meeting people with um, burns. 
I sort of closed, I started to learn to close that chapter now. Yeah, that move on. Move on that, yeah, I have got scars. But what it was was acceptance is a big word, isn't it? Yeah. Acceptance. Yeah. I've accepted I've got these scars. I accept this is how I look. That's me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be anything else, you know. In fact, there's an incident at one of our, um, one, of the, one of the Katie Piper Foundation workshops. Right, okay. Um, there's a camouflage practitioner. And right. So it was one of those... Um, so for anyone that doesn't know what that is, that's someone that specialises in makeup that can cover burns, scars, birthmarks, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, but okay. it was with my arm, my left arm, right. which has got a lot of burns. Yeah. So she started to do some colour match, and there's one that was really good. She started to cover the scar. But somehow, which was really strange, I started to panic. Oh, really? And so she thought, oh, gosh, have you had a reaction? What's right. going on? I said, no, 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 I can't see the colours, textures and patterns. Please take it off. Of the, you can't see the burn? My the burns, burn. yeah. Right. I couldn't see my arm, basically, yeah. my arm. Yeah. And as the wipe went on my skin and we took this um, makeup off, my heart rate started to come down. At that moment, I decided I don't want to cover up anymore now. I don't want to hide, basically. Yeah. You are you and you're okay with that. Yeah, I yeah. want to see my arm as it is, not covered up. Yeah. But I don't want to look like anybody else as uh-huh. well. I mean, I think a lot of people would like to be you. I mean, you're pretty, you know, as far as humans go, you you broke the ceiling. Like, you're so strong, determined, and now so definite in who you are. But what I also realised was I want to be a consistent person. I want to be mm-hmm. who I am at home is who I am sitting in this studio right now. Yeah. Is consistency the answer to happiness, do you yeah. think? Definitely. Um, authenticity and consistency. Yeah. Being true to yourself. Like, my biggest thing is live and stand in your own truth. Right. You know, what works for you. And it's not comparative to anyone else. Yeah. It's what works for you. So on the show, we're trying to use um, people's experiences to empower one another. And um, we're giving listeners the opportunity to email in uh, with their own their own problems and issues and adversity they're facing. Um, I've got an email here. It says, hi, Katie, I'm 23 and overweight. I would love to start exercising, but I don't know where to start. I am embarrassed about my body and I would love to start swimming, but I can't bear the thought of myself in a swimsuit. Where do I begin? I want to exercise, but I am so, so scared. What advice would you give this person? Gosh, it just sounds like my life few really? years ago. Yeah. Do you feel like you could have written it? Totally. Um, yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? The first mm-hmm. step. The thing is, people are going to stare. Mm-hmm. Regardless, you could be big, short, tall, everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, but the moment is you've got to focus just on you and why you're there. Mm-hmm. I'm here because I want to make a positive change towards something. Mm-hmm. As for the swimsuit, I remember wearing my, when I first time wearing a swimsuit and people staring. Not where, only did I feel like they were staring at my burns, I thought they were staring at, how big I was, mm-hmm. because that's what I was carrying. But in grand scheme of things, they might have just thought, wow, look how amazing she is to just do that. Yeah, they could have been in awe of actually, yeah. no, no shit's given, I'm here for me. Yeah. You know? When I wore my bikini for the first time, I actually saw that I got a shape. Because mm. as much as swimsuits are beautiful, but I was hiding behind a lot mm-hmm. of it. And I just felt worse. And then as soon as I wore a bikini, I'm like, you've actually got a shape. So you felt liberated in that way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I get that with my friends. It's a running joke. I said, if ever I get married and we're going to do it on a beach, I want everyone in a bikini. I don't care. Lumps, bumps, <laughs> everything hanging we're out. We're doing it together. Yeah. 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 And I do that with my friends. So wherever we go, I go, please pack one bikini. Yeah. Even if you wear it in the bedroom and in the bathroom. Yeah. Just look at your body. 
She needs to come swimming with you. I think that's the answer. Please do. Take me with you. (laughs) So we've got another email in. It says, hello, Katie. I'm really struggling since my brother passed away two years ago. I've had counselling, but I still feel so angry. It's now starting to affect my work and I've also lost friends. I don't know what to do. How can I help myself? Well, it's interesting, the last line, how can I help myself? Well, that's kind of step one that you have recognised it is about that personal responsibility and, and only you can help yourself. And, you know, in regards to the friends that you've lost, I don't think labelling them friends is the right label. No. Because they wouldn't have backed away. No. If Regardless of how much you might push them away or how much anger or whatever you might have even said, mm-hmm. if they're really true friends, they would still be there. Mm. Um, loss of any kind, right? Like whether it's a personal loss or loss of something, yeah. it's huge. Yeah, but first thing is recognize it's a loss, and also look at the timeline. He passed away two years ago. I still feel angry. Two years is nothing. It's nothing in grand scheme, and it's not about other people's measure because I remember growing up. Get over it. It's happened. How do you get over? At the age of ten, somebody saying to me, "Culture, this is in my culture and community." Mm. It is one of those things. That's so detached and harsh, isn't it? It is so harsh. So awful. So I lived by that. So I lived, and like I said, that's why it took me almost 20 years mm. to understand it's that it's okay. Yeah, I'm doing it my way now. Well, we hear it now, don't we, a lot, which is good. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay not to be okay. I think you need to go through an, a whole wheel of emotions. Yeah, I mean, there's five stages of grief. Mm. You can't bypass them. You can't go from one to five. Mm. You're missing the in-between. Mm-hmm. So first we go through denial, mm-hmm. um, then the acceptance and all of these things. Mm. Go through the process. Own the emotion. It's okay. And let people know. I mean, it says here it's affecting my work. Ask for a meeting with your line manager and say, I want to let you know I'm going through this and this isn't me. This is what's happening. Yeah. Because we could have colleagues and we could think, what's going on with them? Mm -hmm. And if we don't know, we could not support them. But we wanted to had we known. Had we known. And it's always the case, isn't it? It's Mm. so many things. Had we known. Well, you said people didn't know around you when you had depression. I didn't give anything away. Yeah. Not even to one person. So, but had somebody known at that time, mm. maybe half of those things might have not happened, right? And you know, a lot of these things. The bottom line is, we need to keep talking because mm-hmm. yeah. the more we talk, the less power we give the yeah. negative thoughts, right? And yeah, I think that's a really, really good line of advice. And that's what you've come to do today is to talk and to talk to me. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you did. Thank you so much for Thank being you. so honest, so open and sharing a part of your beautiful soul with us. Thank you so much for today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Casey Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, I'm talking to Jack Ayres. He's the current Mr. England. He's also a personal trainer and a GB para canoe athlete a charity ambassador and a catwalk model. He's achieved all of this after having elective surgery to amputate his leg that had become worse throughout his childhood. We talk about how he no longer considers himself to be disabled since his amputation and how meeting another amputee before his surgery inspired him to achieve his goals. If you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word, rate and review the show where you got this or share on socials.